Good afternoon and welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter here filling in for Al Cresta. Today is the feast of the presentation of the Lord in the temple. And the temple was the locus, the heartbeat of the entirety of Jewish identity. It was the center of the Jewish world and it played an integral part in the expression of life as a covenant people of God. We explore this notion of the temple and the presentation of Jesus at the temple with Dr. Andre Villeneuve. Dr. Andre Villeneuve is an associate professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. He received his PhD from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem in 2013, and he wrote his dissertation on the topic of nuptial symbolism in the New Testament and in ancient Jewish writings. His main areas of interest include the study of the sacred scripture, Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, leading pilgrimages to the Holy Land, and fostering reconciliation of Israel and the Church through the work of Catholics for Israel. You can learn more at catholicsforisrael.com. Andre, how are you doing? Good, Marcus. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's really good to talk to you again. Likewise. So, let's start with with a kind of overarching commentary on the narrative here. The presentation of Jesus. We we go through this feast every year, we read this narrative, we meditate on it uh, in, in the rosary, but what's so significant about what Joseph and Mary did for Jesus this day? Well, it's significant because uh, we see Joseph and Mary in, uh, and it's narrated, of course, in the Gospel of Luke only, so it's unique to Luke. Possibly Luke is the only Gentile writer of the entire Bible, mm. I say possibly because we're not 100% sure, but it seems that uh, if there is one writer who was not Jewish, it was Luke, but Luke is actually really interested in Jewish tradition. That's right. And he shows this, um, he shows this in the account of the presentation, because this was an absolute uh, fun- fundamental commandment of the Torah, of the Law of Moses, that... Uh, we know all Jews were and still are circumcised on the eighth day. And mm-hmm. then after that, uh, for for boys, for baby boys, they had to wait another 33 days and then go to the temple to make an offering and uh, consecrate their, their child to, uh, to the Lord. Also for the purification of the mother, because uh, birth um, puts a, uh, a woman in a state of ritual impurity for all that time. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing here are... Mary and Joseph, and uh, obviously Jesus as well, fully faithful to uh, to the Torah, to the Law of Moses, and that's a pattern we see throughout uh, the Gospel of Luke and even the Acts of the Apostles, which is basically Luke Part Two. So uh, I, I want to zoom into exactly what you just said earlier, which is, and something a lot of us don't think about, Gentile physician as Luke was, he really does take gr- great pains to note out these particular details. For example, mentioning the fact that uh, they waited for the time of the purification, uh, th- this seven days after birth, she shall be unclean. And then after that, it's appealing to Leviticus 12 verses 1 to 4, right? So yeah. Luke is making sure that he knows where this is coming from. He's not trying to divorce this from the narrative right. of the Old Covenant. So tell us more about that. Well, like I said, it's it's a, almost an oddity because Luke, if he was not Jewish and he was a Gentile, one wonders about his, uh, his motivation and possibly by the time he wrote it, there were a lot of challenges to to the Jewish law on the part of, uh, of new Christians. So he is uh, just adamant, and that's just one example that we see at the very beginning of Jesus' life, that he really wants to underline that the Holy Family was uh, absolutely faithful and observant of, uh, of the Law of Moses. And that's something we're going to continue to see 
in all Gospels, but especially in Luke, and how Jesus will always respect the law of Moses. And unfortunately, often we have some misreadings of that that seem to uh, to give the impression that kind of Jesus dismisses these uh, these commandments, especially pertaining to the Sabbath, let's say, or to the dietary laws. Mm-hmm. But here we see that Luke is setting this pattern of uh, of observing the law as something good for the sanctification of his people and also a great sign of obedience uh, to the Torah that uh, Moses gave to Israel as a sign of their covenant with God. Right. And the the narrative goes on to talk about uh, Anna and her role in all of this uh, briefly, but primarily yep. Simeon and his prophecy and the assurance that the Holy Spirit had given him. Why was Simeon's yep. words so crucial, not just to Mary, but just, you know, the Nunc Dimittis, now Lord, you may let your servant go in peace. He specifically talks about the fact that this is a light for revelation of the Gentiles. And yep. just talk about the milieu at that point and why those words are actually very jarring. Well, it's surprising and it's fascinating because First of all, we know virtually nothing about Simeon, who mm-hmm. he is. All we know, he was right, righteous and devout. Uh, we, we've never heard of him before. We don't hear of him again. Mm-hmm. And uh, so evidently he was a, a pious Jew. That's what the text tells us. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And so he, uh, it's significant that it says in uh, verse 26 of Luke chapter 2, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah in Hebrew, of course. Mm-hmm. And so we know there were a lot of messianic expectations for this uh, anointed one by the, the first century. We, we know that Judea was under the Roman occupation and oppression. And uh, we know that all the initial disciples were Jew who eventually recognized Jesus' messianic identity. Mm-hmm. But we also know that most didn't. And so it's really quite extraordinary for one to have these kind of insights with uh, in front of baby Jesus. I mean, it's not like Jesus (laughs) kind of wowed him with a lot of miracles at this point, right? Or even with any teaching at all. And so clearly there is some kind of uh, spiritual revelation, which is repeated here at least a couple of times. Uh, It says in the very next verse, again, inspired by the spirits, Mm -hmm. he came uh, into the temple and then he uttered these words uh, of prophecy. So the prophecies speak, make a distinction so that's uh, verses 29 to uh, 32. He uh, speaks of a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, just before that, my eyes have seen your salvation. And in Hebrew, what's salvation? It's uh, Yeshua. And what mm-hmm. is the name of Jesus? It's Yeshua. That's right. So it's uh, it's basically the same word with an extra letter uh, or one letter less on the name of, uh, of Jesus. So he is aware somehow and uh, mysteriously that um, that Jesus is going to bring forth salvation for his people. How much insight we know he had, we don't know exactly. But he seems to be also uh, aware that it will not only be limited to Israel, to the Jewish people. It will be bring glory. It will be glory for the people of Israel, but also it's going to be a revelation to, to the Gentiles. Right. So what was the attitude of the general Jewish populace at the time of Jesus as it pertained to the covenant and the Gentiles? As it pertains to the covenant and the Gentiles. Now, that's a great question. As the saying goes, two Jews, three opinions. And it, it was true at the time as it is true today. And so when I lived in Israel, this was a topic that was brought up 
fairly often that uh, you see certain streams in Judaism that are kind of exclusive. In other words, the Gentiles just need to keep the seven laws of Moses, which are really basic moral laws to mm-hmm. not commit the most uh, heinous sins, you know, and have some kind of system of justice. And, uh, and basically that's all that God requires of the Gentiles. Now, there are other streams of Judaism that I would say are especially based on, on like Isaiah, because Isaiah tends to have very universalistic That's right. prophecies where he speaks of Israel becoming a light to, to, the, to the nations, mm-hmm. which, in fact, Zechariah and Luke seem to be kind of echoing Isaiah as well in, uh, in his prophecy. And so Isaiah tends to have a more, more of a universalistic view, and some of the other prophets as well saying that the whole world will confess that there is only one God and they will worship the one God of Israel. And so there seemed to have to have been some expectation that the faith in the God of Israel will be will become universalized and probably the Messiah would play a crucial role in doing this. Right. And uh perhaps there is even there's been kind of a going back from this uh, universalistic ec- uh, expectancy uh, in Judaism since the, the time of the Second Temple, since the time of Jesus. Yep. But we can still find both uh, in Judaism, one that tends to be a little more introverted and kind of uh, the truth is really just for the Jews, but you also have some who, who would say, uh, no, we do expect the whole world to come to faith in the God of Israel and to, uh, uh, to, to partake in God's salvation. Right. So, and and both these perspectives are pretty crucial. And I want to pivot a little bit now to what Simeon says about Mary. And very few people understand the significance of that verse, because ultimately, when you keep reading the scriptures, at the end, it's Jesus's side, Jesus's heart that's pierced. A sword will pierce. But but it says, no, a sword will pierce your soul. So what's the biblical significance here? Yeah. So once again, uh, we're talking about clearly some kind of revelation of the Holy Spirit because Simeon, on a, in a natural on a natural basis, could could not have known anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a, here's a small Jewish child who is just you know born of a relatively poor family, and so um, sure the Romans were around; they were difficult times, but um, uh, certainly the, these were very mysterious words when they were said at the time when nobody knew you know what how Jesus' life would unfold and how Mary, of course, is her own life would unfold so closely related to the life of her son. Mm-hmm. So we know, of course, that, like you say, it would have been more intuitive knowing uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. so for him to say that a sword will pierce, pierce through the soul, the soul of, of your son who is mm-hmm. just to be born, kind of that would have been an anticipation of the cross. Right. But here he seems to be pointing to Mary's co-suffering with uh, with her own son, mm-hmm. and that is something, of course, that is very important to Catholics, and that tends to be overlooked by many uh, Protestants. Um, this idea of well, that we we tend to see a great role in Mary's own suffering together with Jesus, which anticipates the whole Catholic view of redemptive suffering. Right. That Christ suffers, but we also suffer with him, don't we? Absolutely. He doesn't suffer so that we don't have to suffer, but he suffers so that we may imitate him, and so that our suffering becomes also redemptive in a certain sense when it is joined to his. And who is the one who most perfectly uh, acts out or or, um, 
kind of joins her, her, the sufferings of her son is, of course, Mary. And so here we really have a beautiful anticipation of Mary's own redemptive suffering. And, and we know of her presence at the cross, too, when most of the, the disciples fled. And uh, so just a few very loyal followers, including Mary, were right there at the cross with mm-hmm. him. So uh, we're running uh, towards the end of this segment, but we're going to continue this conversation with Dr. Andre Villeneuve, and we're going to expound on the position and theology of the temple and the various iterations of the temple and how that proved to be the true locus of the Jewish faith at the time. Stay tuned. I'm Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Cresta in the Afternoon. Marcus Peter filling in for Al Cresta. Talking to doc, Dr. Andre Villeneuve, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. And we're talking about the presentation of the Lord and the significance of the temple. So, Andre, we were talking earlier about specifically how uh, the presentation as a narrative fit into the overall location of the temple, right? So let's talk about the temple at large. Let's talk about what its role was. Let's talk about Solomon's temple and then move forward from there. Sure. Well, the temple is, of course, the place of God's dwelling in the entire Old Testament and New Testament as well. And we know it goes back to not just to Solomon, but really the tabernacle in the wilderness. And so as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt, anyone who's read the book of Exodus, you probably started the book with a lot of enthusiasm until about halfway through, and then when you start going through the description of the tabernacle, that's where a lot of people tune out, right, <laughs> when, you read, uh, when you read Scripture. And so you have a lot, many chapters, something like uh, 15 chapters or more, of uh, kind of tedious descriptions of this holy place with all a uh, whole courtyard and various um, coverings and the furnishings that go inside. Mm-hmm. And that was the place where God dwelt with the Israelites throughout their wilderness wanderings. And then, uh, of course, it accompanied them into the Promised Land, and we kind of lose sight of the tabernacle for most of the books of uh, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel. We mm-hmm. get some, a few glimpses of it once in a while, as well as glimpses of the Ark of the Covenant. But uh, that's only until David, and even after David, until until King Solomon builds this uh, this first temple, which is basically just going to be a massive extension of the tabernacle in the wilderness. Right. And so it was known as the place where God dwelt among His people. And we, well, what did it look like? The same structure, like I said, of the tabernacle and the temple. You walked in the main courtyard. You had this huge altar where offerings were, sacrifices were offered. Throughout the day, you had some public offerings for a special feast and on the Sabbath, but you also had some private offerings that mm-hmm. were brought forth. So a lot of bloodshed all the time of these animals being sacrificed. Mm-hmm. Then you had a laver where the priests washed their hands and their feet, and then inside the sanctuary, only priests could go in. And there you would have on the south side the menorah, or the lampstand, symbolizing God's spiritual blessings or intellectual right. blessings upon his people. On the north side, you had the table of showbreads, symbolizing God's physical blessings upon his people, mm-hmm. and the priests got to eat of that 
that that miraculous bread. Uh, there were 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm-hmm. And in the center, you have the altar of incense. And so the incense represented the prayers of the people of Israel going up to God. And behind the curtain, you had the innermost holy of holies with the Ark of the Covenant, which contained uh, the tablets of the law, the word of God, the manna, the bread of life that sustained the Israelites during the wilderness mm-hmm. wanderings and the Aaron staff, which represented the priesthood. And so that was the holiest place. Nobody could enter it except for the high priest once a year on the Day of Atonement. So uh, in the outer court, there were specific entrances for women. There there were specific places that women could gather. So uh, tell us a little about that, because that pertains to where Mary was uh, when she came forward for her own purification. Yeah, that's right. So that court of women is not actually prescribed in the, in the book of Exodus as mm-hmm. part of the tabernacle, but it became uh, an essential part. There were different levels of, of sanctity in Solomon's temple, and we know that especially from the second temple, from Herod's temple, that first you had the court of the Gentiles, which really surrounded the entire temple, uh, temple mount, where, where anybody could, uh, come, uh, could come and participate in Israel's worship. Right. Then there was this wall which said we've even found re- remains of it, of an inscription saying anyone who crosses this wall has only himself to blame for the ensuing death that will follow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so you didn't mess with that. After this, this wall, this uh, wall of separation, uh, there you can only have Jews, only Israelites come in. And the initial court was the court of women where it was not just women. Men could also go in there, but that's as far as the women can go. And uh, presumably this is where uh, where Mary came as well, and where she met uh, she and Joseph met uh, Simeon and Hannah. Mm-hmm. So uh, Simeon would have come forth from the priest's hall to the outer court for everything that right. we are seeing in the presentation narrative. Right, exactly. So uh, talk about the Holy of Holies. Uh, we we know the Ark resided there. Uh, what yeah. was its role, especially during Yom Kippur? On Yom Kippur, the high priest had a number of very specific sacrifices, uh, most notably the two goats. Mm-hmm. One uh, that was, uh, well, first he had to offer a, a bull for himself. He had to, to sacrifice for his own sins, but then a goat on which he had confessed all the sins of the people of Israel. Mm-hmm. A second goat that was sent into the wilderness. Actually, that second goat was also thrown to its death. Uh, that's not detailed in Scripture, but we know that from extra-biblical tradition. Mm-hmm. And so that second goat symbolically carried all the, the sins of Israel. It was known as the, the Azazel in Hebrew. That's right, yeah. Goat. Yeah. And uh, so it was a very sanctified moment. The high priest went into the tabernacle uh, four times, one with incense and uh, several other times with uh, the various blood offerings uh, for himself and then for the people. And uh, it was really basically kind of danger of death for the high priest himself. He had to be in a situation of holiness, of purity. And it just uh, pointed to the um, the awesomeness of uh, the presence of God, mm-hmm. that you cannot just show up in his presence in any situation, and that if there's any sin or any impurity, it's utterly incompatible with the presence of God. That's right. And uh, so that's what the, the temple really reminds us of, and uh, sometimes we lose a bit that sense of sacredness because we can go to Mass at any time and, you know, we have access to the sacraments, but we really should approach Mass, and especially the Eucharist, like that, as if we were entering into the Holy of Holies. And that's why we, the Eucharist, in fact, resides in a place called the Tabernacle, and that's the same name that uh, was, of course, the, the original sanctuary of Israel. 
So uh, tell us about exactly what you just said. The fact of the matter is in the Old Covenant, approaching the all-holy God in his completely holy state with an ounce of with a stain of sin upon one's soul basically incurred death this was a thing that the jews just knew to kind of take for granted and therefore not uh, not approach god without reverence so uh, yeah yeah just just tell us a little more about that yeah i mean it's uh, that's the pattern we see throughout all the scripture since the garden of eden right sin mm-hmm. leads to death and uh, this is our number one problem in life, that all humans are sinners, and therefore, because of sin, we are utterly unable to come into God's presence mm-hmm. unless there is some kind of fix to our sin problem, so to speak. Right. And uh, that is what we see throughout the Old Testament, that what is necessary to fix sin, it's this idea of sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And sacrifice must involve the shedding of blood, because, in fact, we must die when we sin. We have deserved death. And life is in the blood, as Leviticus says. Yep. And so it's this uh, concept of substitution or vicarious atonement. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, this is, we have more information even outside of the Bible. We know that the, the priests would lay their hands on the head of the animal, not just on Yom Kippur, but on any uh, sin offering that That's was right. brought to the, to the temple. And he would, actually not the priest, but the person who would offer the sacrifice would mm-hmm. confess all his sins and say, I hereby transfer all of my sins onto this animal. Mm-hmm. Then he would take a knife and slaughter the poor animal himself, not the priest. Yeah. And so it was a pretty strong pedagogical experience for anyone who had sinned. You had to take this knife and confess your sins, and there you go. You slaughter this animal, and you would... It was like a, a slaughter in effigy, right? You were saying, this right. should be happening to me. That's and right. And now I'm, uh, this animal is taking my death in my stake. Right, so there's... There's this real notion of the substitution of penalty. Uh, this thing is dying in my yeah. place. So uh, yeah. then we see the temple destroyed during the reign of Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian siege of uh, Jerusalem. And the yeah. temple gets rebuilt. And we get some key figureheads here. You've got Zerubbabel. You've got uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And mm-hmm. with the reconstruction of the temple, however, there's a marked difference. What is it? Uh, unfortunately, the Holy of Holies is empty by most traditions. And so on the one hand, well, Zerubbabel's temple was relatively modest. In fact, a lot of the the older Jews even wept. Uh, We hear about that Mm -hmm, in the book of mm -hmm. Ezra when they saw the new temple built. So the initial second temple was very modest until Herod came along, and uh, he greatly expanded the second temple, so Mm -hmm. that it became even much greater than Solomon's. Mm -hmm. And so it was not a question of architectural grandeur, you might say, but the problem was that the Holy of Holies was empty. We know that, well, we don't know, but we, we know that the ark somehow disappeared. And we have a hint of that, I think it's in Second Maccabees, where we're told that Jeremiah somehow right. took the ark and, and hid it somewhere. But of course, it's never been found. But there was a sense in the Second Temple that there was something essential that was missing. In the, it was still considered, God's presence was still believed to rest and to dwell in the temple, but mm-hmm. uh, that was the most sacred vessel of his presence that was missing. So uh, alongside the fact that the temple had been rebuilt in that way, there was also a change to the kind of sacrificial structure, the the kind of sacrifices that were offered in the temple, uh, with with particular emphasis on the Todah sacrifices, uh, the Tamit sacrifices. So tell us about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure there was really that much of a change, but we do hear... It, or if you're thinking of the Psalms, we do hear a lot of the Psalms that speak of uh, zev, the bringing the Zevach Todah in Hebrew, so mm-hmm. the sacrifice of thanks. 
Right. Uh, so the sacrifice of thanksgiving is a subset of the peace offering. And um, so they were still offering sin offerings and guilt offerings, so maybe there was a bit of a shift of an emphasis by, mm-hmm. by the, the second temple. And uh, so definitely the Psalms tend to celebrate the, the peace offerings and the, the Zevach Soda mm-hmm. because it was a more joyful sacrifice. When, we, when you offered a sin offering or guilt offering, it was a solemn experience. Right, right. And plus, it was, there was no barbecue for you. I mean, you brought the <laughs> sacrifice, and, uh, and it was entirely burnt on the, 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 the altar, and the priest could eat it, but not the, the sinner or the offerer. That's right. Um, however, for the peace offerings, including the, the Toda, the, the Thanksgiving offering, yes, this was the only sacrifice that... Um, that common Israelites could actually take the meat and bring it back home and have this big, uh, right. big grill feast, a barbecue with their their friends and neighbors, right? So we've and, got uh, so we've got two more minutes. And uh, in the New Testament, now we no longer have the physical temple in Jerusalem as the locus of our expression of the covenant. Uh, t- tell yeah. us what has happened in this new covenant. So with the new covenant uh, that Jesus institutes, we need to turn to the Epistle to the Hebrews where we were told that first Jesus entered the heavenly sanctuary, and of course the earthly sanctuary was just a pale uh, image of the heavenly sanctuary. And then you need to read the book of Revelation that tells us about heaven having lampstands and an altar and incense and all this temple imagery. But do we, we, do we need to wait for heaven to see this? Well, any time we go to Mass, to the, mm-hmm. to the Holy Liturgy, we also see incense and the tabernacle and sacred bread and uh, and candles and uh, we hear holy 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 and hear alleluia mm-hmm. so these are all things that we that anticipate heaven as we see in the book of revelation but also that echo everything that they did in the uh, the temple in jerusalem right so in, in other words in a very real sense the temple has become truly universal truly catholicos now yeah, yeah that's right so uh, just moving on from there, when we contemplate the temple and even just Jerusalem in our lives as Catholics, a word of exhortation to all of us listening. Well, we know that God invites us all into his presence, and we know that his presence is, uh, uh, invites us also to holiness. And so we don't want to enter the Holy of Holies in a state of sin. And so we know that to enter God's presence in the temple, you have to offer sacrifice. And today we have the ultimate sacrifice of Christ, and we receive his forgiveness first through the sacrament of reconciliation, by which we're reconciled to God, and then we're invited to partake of the bread of life, which we receive on the altar of the Eucharist. Amen. We're talking to Dr. Andre Villeneuve, Associate Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. Stay tuned as we round off the second hour of today's program. I'm Marcus Peter, filling in for Al Cresta on Cresta in the afternoon. <laughs> 